It's time for Dodger baseball. The sports department at WFUV and the history behind it are a story largely untold. That is, until now. The voices that have shaped the student-run station for the last seven decades dive into their time at Rose Hill. This is the Off the Air Podcast, the legacy of WFUV Sports. Episode 10 of Off the Air, Emmanuel Barbari joined by Chris Baccia, and we head into the local Fordham tree of professional broadcasters this week with Chris Carino, and he is one of a kind of this craft. Emmanuel, uh, Chris Carino, just such a wonderful guy to, to talk to because, as you mentioned, there's the, the craft that, that we look up to uh, among so many Fordham alumni, but he's one from a generation a bit earlier than most of the guests we've had on the show. Um, we just spoke with Jack Armstrong, who's another person from, from an earlier time at WFUV. But of course, Chris Carino credits so much of his growth as a broadcaster to Marty Glickman, who, who was uh, the sports director at the time. And, and a guy whose philosophy about this craft um, really can be found in the work of people like Chris Carino. A truly interesting story as well and path to his current position, his battle and fight against FSHD, a form of muscular dystrophy, launched the Chris Carino Foundation. Really intriguing to learn a little bit more about the efforts he's made to raise awareness and also just keep people's minds in the right place. It, it takes resiliency that I don't know that many of us could relate to for Chris to have come so far in his career um, despite a physical condition that makes life difficult in many ways. But he has an outlook on his life in spite of this disease, with this disease, that I think everyone can draw something from, which is that you must have gratitude, you know, regardless of the hand you're dealt, if you will. And, and Chris just has such a graceful message um, that, that we should really all hear and we should all uh, try, to, try to follow. Exciting episode ahead with Chris, but before we get there, let's learn a little bit more about our 10th guest on Off the Air. This week on Off the Air, Chris Carino. A 1992 Fordham University graduate, Chris served as a play-by-play broadcaster, calling Rams football, basketball, and baseball, along with hosting WFUV's one-on-one. After his time in the Bronx, Carino got his start with Compass Media, while also joining New Jersey Nets coverage as a studio producer and feature reporter, ahead of opportunities as a studio host and eventual full-time Nets play-by-play announcer in 2001. Carino called men's and women's basketball as part of NBC's coverage of the 2008 Beijing Summer Games and serves as the lead NFL play-by-play voice for Compass Media Network's National Game of the Week. Over the years, Carino has lent his voice to numerous broadcasts for NBA TV, the NFL Network, the Yes Network, and ESPN. He is finishing off his 19th season as the radio play-by-play voice of Nets basketball. 
Here's the Off the Air Podcast with Chris Carino. Chris, thanks for being with us. Hey, guys. 1992, and it seems uh, like I'm old. <laughs> like almost 30 years ago. Well, Chris, everyone's had to adapt to something throughout the last couple of months. For you, it's been remote radio play-by-play uh, during a pandemic. What have been the biggest challenges so far with that? It's it's something that I've I'm used to doing because we actually do I've I've done a number of games off monitor uh, for NBA TV I'll do all their international games uh, in the preseason and during the season so um, if if there are preseason games being played in Europe or Asia I'll I'll do those games off monitor from Sea Caucus um, the London games the France games the Mexico City games so uh, the only adjustment for me is that. I've always done, I'm always doing TV for those, which um, it, it makes it very easy on a TV announcer because you're very focused on the monitor. Whereas if you're uh, doing TV in an arena, sometimes you may be looking at the game and, and you, have to, you have to remind yourself to look at the monitor and make sure that you're seeing what's on the monitor because obviously you have to put captions to it and that's what people are seeing at home. Um, with radio, I'm, it's the first time I've ever done radio off monitor and you are, you're, you're, you're subject to whatever they put on the screen. So you may be trying to set the lineup. You decide at that moment, I'm going to set the lineup um, and you're looking who's on the floor. And then all of a sudden they'll cut to a shot of the coach. And now you, you, you haven't been able to, to finish setting the lineup or um, there'll be a substitution and you can't look at the, at the uh, scores table and see who's coming in and out because you're watching free throws or whatever it may be. So those are the things. It, listen, is it is it difficult to to adjust to? Um, no, it's not ideal. It's not difficult either. And um, the thing that I miss though is is the energy of the crowd, that environment. Um, the playoffs are going to be. I'm gonna. I'm just gay. They're gonna be sad. You know, I, 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 I've been lucky enough to do hundreds of playoff games now in my career with the Nets, and I get such a charge out of doing them. I get so excited. I used to, you know, say that the playoffs I do for fun. You know, I get paid to do the other games. The playoffs uh, are something that, you know, I would pay to do. Don't tell my boss that. They're not watching it. <laughs> but um, it, I, I, get, I get just so energized by being in that arena being in that environment and it's just not going to be the same and i and i'm looking forward to the playoffs but i know that not being in that arena with those playoff crowds and that atmosphere i mean it's nice to have it back there's no doubt about it but it is not going to be the same that's sort of what i want to ask you about about sports in general i think foremost for us as broadcasters us aspiring broadcasters yourself a professional is a love of sports just a, a love of the game and we've we've lost that for a good period of time now we've gotten it back whether or not it's the the same thing is up for debate and it certainly isn't but um what's it like to have sports back and that just injecting some normalcy even if you don't have the ability to feed off the crowd in a playoff game these days yeah, I think the the question of whether or not we were going to have sports back or could it continue when, when, you know, you look at what's going on in Major League Baseball and 
and and the virus is is going through teams and a number of players and you're wondering well can this continue um it either choice we have is still not a great choice you know i, I still think that the fans and the energy and the environment that those fans provide you know it really makes it it's a part of it and and i think part of the fun of a baseball season is being able to go out to the stadium with my son you know fathers and sons and and families being able to go out and enjoy that time and and sit in the stands on a lazy summer night and just sort of uh you know spend that time together and then you watch a game and in the key moments it get rev it gets revved up and everybody's focus is on the game but when i watch a game now um, it's great to have that. It's great to have that game. But at the same time, um, there is something missing. And it's unfortunate, but it's, it's where we are as a society right now. So, um, I, yes, it's great to have it back. I think we, we had nothing for so long. I mean, think about in a normal sports year, calendar year, there's only a couple of days, I think, out of the year where there isn't a professional sporting event going on. You know, we used to have that, that day or two around the, um, the baseball all-star game, right, where we wouldn't have uh, a game. I remember it was a few years back, a bunch of the uh, – Mike Breen had organized a dinner with all the local play-by-play -play guys, and we did it on – during the all-star break of baseball. It was because it was the one day – that none of us, there, none of us are working. So um, you go from having that to then we went through months with nothing. So it really excited us to get it back. But then I think once you watch the games, you know, ba basketball has been a little different. I think basketball is, is, is suited to be played in a TV studio. And you have this drama between the different players and you can hear them chirping at each other a little bit more. They're very competitive and they can go at it. And the game looks very similar. Baseball, um, it, it's, it, it's a game that at times can be a little low energy and, and dull in the middle. And then when you don't have the fans, it, it even accentuates that more. And then when you get to a point where, like last night I'm watching uh, the Yankees, and in an empty stadium, and, and it's like the ninth inning, and there's a big moment, there's a big pitch and a big at bat, and it's just silent. And I'm trying to, I'm trying to now think about what it's going to be like in October. You know, that could be a, a playoff game or a World Series game where, you know, there's one out in the ninth in a one-run game and a, and a, and and. A, and you know, Aaron Judge is coming to the plate and it'll be quiet. And it's going to be, it, it's, it's, it's not going to be the same. Not that it's not going it, to, it, it should be an asterisk or it's still an accomplishment for these guys and they're still going at it. But, you know, I, it's, it's just different. And uh, personally, I just can't wait for it to all be back where, where there's fans in. I think, I still think, you know, not having sports for so long reminds a lot of people what sports means to them in their lives. And I think not having the fans there in that building is reminding everyone what not, what the fans mean to the experience of sports. Chris, you mentioned that love of sports. You flash back to 1988, you're entering Fordham. You start pursuing a career in sports broadcasting. What inspired you to, 
make sports a permanent part of your life and to choose Fordham to do so? Sports was always a huge part of my life. I mean, I can't remember a time when I wasn't a sports fanatic. And I'm talking about go back to when I'm six or seven years old. Uh, my, my, my mother once found this thing I had. She had saved it. It was this little booklet I made for the Super Bowl in 1977. I hadn't even turned seven yet. And I made a little preview. It was the Raiders and the Vikings. And it wasn't like me just drawing the helmets or something with crayons. It was, I was, I was breaking down like Ken Stabler's, you know, quarterback play, like, and I was six. So obviously, you know, I was the kid, I was the little kid in the neighborhood that all the uh, older kids would quiz about, Hey, who plays third base for the Seattle Mariners? You know, and I'd be like 10 and I'd be like a Bill Stein. And they'd be like, what, how is that can't possibly be true. This is before the internet, you know, you couldn't Google stuff on your phone. Um, but I collected baseball cards and I, and, and, and I knew every player and every position. Um, and then when I was, uh, and, and around that time too, I used to, I had a tape recorder. I used to turn the games down on the TV and I would do play by play into the tape recorder. I was, you know, 10 or 11 years old. So it's always been a huge part of, of my life. And, um, when I was still, oh boy, even before, way before going to Fordham, um, I remember on Sunday nights, sometimes I, I had a, a little Walkman radio and I would get one-on-one -on, -one on the radio and I would listen before I went to bed, not even realizing where it was coming from or who these guys were, but there wasn't a lot of sports talk on the radio. And when I got to Ford, I, so I was, I was um, in competitive speech and debate and I knew that I wanted to do something um, that involved speaking and communicating. Um, and when I got to Fordham, uh, I went up to the radio station in the first week that I was on campus. I really chose Fordham um, because of its academic uh, reputation and the fact that it was in New York City. Um, some of the greatest advice I had gotten from my dad was, um, where do you want to work when you graduate? And I said, I, I want to be in New York. I mean, this is where I grew up. This is, this is the city that I love. This is where I want to be. And he'd say, well, then why don't you go to school in New York? Are you going to go outside of New York and then try and get your way back in? You'll have a competitive advantage in whatever field that you choose. So it was, it was really a, um, something that I took to heart. And that's the reason I went to Fordham. But then again, because of my um, longing to be in public speaking somehow, communications. I was in the business school, but I went to the radio station and it was time to sign up for a workshop. And initially I went in there thinking, well, maybe I'll do news because I was in speech and debate. And, and I know that there was a, uh, you know, a lot of the newscasters had come from that background and done the same things I did. And I said, maybe I'll go up there and see if I could do news. And there was a sign up sheet for the workshops and I saw sports and then suddenly it clicked. I said, well, wait a minute. These are the guys that I would listen to on my Walkman before I went to sleep on Sunday nights. And I've always, um, and I've always played with my tape recorder doing some play by play in the games. Let me see what this is all about and signed up for the sports workshop. And I go, it, it involved an activities period on a Tuesday going up to the station and we would, we go up there and there's Marty Glickman. 
and Marty was the broadcast coach at the time. I knew Marty as the at, at, the, at this time, he was the radio voice of the Jets. Um, and he did Ivy League football on, on PBS. And I didn't know so much about his background, that he had been, for decades, been the voice of the Knicks and the Giants. Um, but I sat in on his, his workshop that first day, that, that maybe, that, I guess, the second week I'm on campus. And I sat in the back of the room, while all the, you know, the older students who were up front, and I just wanted to eavesdrop. I just wanted to hear what was going on here. And I heard Marty talk about play-by-play and framed it in a way that I had never thought about. And I knew two things. I knew, number one, I was really interested in this. I think this is what I want to do. And number two, I really don't know anything about it. I've got to come and I've got to sit here every week and I've got to listen to Marty Glickman and I've got to let him break down everything that I ever thought I knew about play by play, sort of strip it and, and start new. And that was the turning point in my life, really. Marty Glickman, of course, uh, a mentor in that way. Um, I, if, if we could just go further on Marty and, and what he meant to your career, um, what was his broadcasting philosophy? If you, if you, could spell that out for us. Uh, how how did he how did he see that when you say that he had such a a cogent idea of what broadcasting was? What was play by play to Marty Glickman? It was number one. There's a mantra that's still in my head every time I go on the air, and it's something that Marty he would say over and over, and I still hear it in his voice in my head. No matter what I'm doing in broadcasting, consider the listener. That was it. Consider the listener. Put yourself in the mind of the person that's listening or watching. What is it that they need from me right now? How do I sound to them? And the idea of painting a picture of the game and creating this theater of the mind, you know, that's, that's what Marty did for me. That's all of a sudden, that's how I viewed the job. You know, especially at the time when we were at WFUV, it was just radio. We weren't, it, there was no streaming. We weren't doing TV. We were strictly doing radio broadcasts of a game. So that whole idea of painting this picture in the listener's mind, that changed my, my thought process of what the job entailed and how you go about doing it. So, so that's the basics of what Marty taught us. Chris, after graduation from Fordham, you mentioned staying local and trying to give yourself that competitive edge. What was the most important decision you think you made in that time frame where you graduated that allowed you to be in a position eventually to become the voice of the Brooklyn Nets? It really, it goes back to my time at Fordham. When I was, um, let's go back to my early years at Fordham. You know how I've gotten to know a lot of you guys. that's something I've always tried to be involved with you guys and help you whenever I can be there for you when you want to call talk about um, your craft uh, be guests on the shows when I was younger it was the Bob Papas and the Mike Breens of the world that would come on and and be our guests on -on one-on-one and would talk to us so I got to meet those guys and um, I had met Bob Papa probably when I was a sophomore or junior and I was going into my senior year and he was looking for an intern. 
at the Giants radio broadcast. He was doing pre and post at the time for the Giants. And uh, I saw the post on the, the we have a, uh, we would have this, um, you know, board up at the station that would have uh, things pinned to it with different opportunities. And I saw that, you know, it said Bob Papa was looking for an intern on the Giants radio broadcast, uh, give him a call. And I called him and he was like, yeah, you know, I, I remember you, we, you know, we, you're, you've done some good work there. I, you know, you, you're it, you know, come on in. We'll, 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 we'll give you the internship. And, uh, and that started me where now I, now you're in the door professionally at, at the time it was WNEWAM, which was an all Sinatra station on AM that, that would do sports and, and Bob worked there and Marty Glickman worked there. Um, a number of different people over the years. And I got to know the people that ran that station. And, and my bosses now took an interest in, in my career and what I was doing. And when I graduated, it turned into a part-time job um, at the station. And the Nets were on the station as well. And through um, a guy named Gary Brandt, who used to run the, the, the sports department at WNEW and the Giants Radio Network, um, through Gary, I met the powers that be at the NBA and at the Nets and uh, started working part-time as a studio producer for the Nets when I was just out of college. And then Bob Papa became the play-by-play guy of the Nets. Um, and I was producing his show and I was hosting some of the pre and post games. So, it, you know, I started with the Nets right out of college because of my association with the Giants, which started back in my Fordham days. So staying in New York, um, and, and you know, it's a dream come true for me to be able to be the voice of a New York area team, uh, starting in New Jersey with the Nets and now in Brooklyn. Um, this is where I grew up. This is where I wanted to be when I went to Fordham. And now to have made a career as the voice of an NBA team in the New York area is a dream come true. And it all started with me getting an internship with the Giants when I was still at Fordham. Being... Um, in the New York area as a home base for, for so long and being with one organization for so long, 28 years and uh, two, since 2002 uh, as the play-by-play radio voice for the Nets, what has your relationship with the organization evolved to become? How important has it been uh, for you to be in one place with one organization, of course, doing other work on the side, but having the Nets as, as a sort of foundation? The Nets have changed so much. And, um, you know, I, it's funny, I'm reading this novel uh, by Pete Hamill, who just passed away. And it's a novel called Forever. And he, you know, he's a, it's a, it's an epic novel that goes back to the time when he was from Ireland, and he comes over to New York. And um, these circumstances happen, it's a bit of a fable, but he's given the power to live forever. And but he can't leave the island of Manhattan. So he's you're basically with him from revolutionary war times through you know modern day all through manhattan and all these people come and go and 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 the and the city changes and he has to change in relationship to it and he's with it all the way through and it it almost relates to my nets years i mean i've been involved with the net broadcast more than half of my life and my entire real adult post-college life. And I've seen new owners. I've seen, I've had numerous bosses. 
I've had numerous presidents, CEOs. I've gone through all these different players and coaches. And, you know, I've, I've had different partners, although Tim Capstraw now has been my partner for the last uh, 18 years. But um, I've, I've seen so much happen. But, you know, so much has happened in my own personal life. You know, I've had to deal with, um, you know, my, my physical issues with having muscular dystrophy and how I was, I was diagnosed after I started working with the Nets. And I feel like I've, I've lived with this for so long and I've had to manage my life in that way. I've gotten married. I've, I've had a family. All these things that have happened, the one constant has been the Nets. And it's been a great anchor to have in my life. I haven't had to struggle with um, moving around and finding um, different jobs and opportunities, although I've had different side opportunities in that. It's, I've still always had my allegiance to the Nets and that organization, who, who, no matter who's been in charge, has shown an allegiance to me. So it's, it's been beneficial, I think, to both sides. It, and, it's, and it's an amazing um, accomplishment to have been with one organization for so long. And the fact that it's work that I really relish and that I really enjoy and that I feel is so purposeful for me um, has made it important to stay in one area and not and not look to fight. You know, it's funny when I when I first started around. You know, the first few years of the playoffs, I remember Bob Raisman writing an article about uh, me and being with the Nets, and he talked. He said, "Well, you know, there's so many guys that have been the voice of the Nets um, over the years, and and none of them lasted very long. They all went on. They always they always look for greener pastures somewhere else." You know, and why is it that you've been able to to stay and, and you've and you've been rewarded with so many playoff games and um and, and exciting things in the organization? I said, because I think it's I I never looked for that greener pasture. When I started calling Nets games as the play-by-play -play guy, um, yes, I had dreams of doing other things and I've and I've gotten to do those things, but it was my greener pasture. The, it, it was the, the job that I aspired to, to be the voice of a New York team, professional team, um, was something that it didn't matter who it was. It, you know, and it, it was the Nets. It became all that more important to me because I had started with them and I was with them for so long. Um, but, you know, that's, I think, why it's uh, it, it's been special to me and that relationship has been special and continues to be special to this day. And Chris, um, you, you mentioned your, your fight with FSHD, form of muscular dystrophy. And I know it's something you've been open about and you've established the Chris Carino foundation for FSHD. Um, what, what can you tell us and our listeners about your experience, this, this struggle in your life? You, you talk about gratitude and courage and mental toughness. I mean, how fear of the future will paralyze you in the present. I, th these are such inspiring words, and I, and I would love if you could share more. Well, just think of going back to what I was just talking about um, in terms of, you know, Bob Raisman asking that question, why were so many guys, they would just come in for a couple of years and they never lasted. And, and well, they were always seeking a greener pasture somewhere else. And, and I was looking at it for what it was. And I think my relationship to uh, my physical condition added to that. 
you know, having muscular dystrophy makes your life a challenge. You know, traveling is a challenge for me. I need help to do a lot of things. It's important that I have people around me who understand what I'm going through and know what I'm going through. And I don't have to ask for things. They know how to help me. Um, I get that with the nets. It's harder for me to say, well, um, I'm going to go look for an opportunity out in Los Angeles uh, because that can maybe accelerate something in my career. Yeah, but all the challenges that I have to go through in life might make that a little more difficult. And so by going through it, what I've realized is how good I have it. You know, I'm not, I'm not always looking at, you know, I'm not, what's that meme where the guy turns around to look at the other girl, you know, like he's, I'm not always looking for that other opportunity. I, I, I know what I have and I'm really grateful for it. And some people never, never see that because maybe things in their life come a little too easily. So they don't, they don't recognize what's really important. And you would say, well, yeah, but you know, you could be the voice of the, uh, of the LA Lakers and it would be, you'd have so many more people listening to you and uh, it, the cachet of that job might be, uh, might be greater, yes, but do you understand the relationship I've developed with the people here? And no matter who's listening or where the next place is in the pecking order of professional teams in New York or in the country, I know how good I have it. I know what it's like to work with one partner for 18 years and how much fun that we have working together. I know what my quality of life is. I know how important living in the New York area is to my family and how important they are to me. So all these things, I'm grateful for those opportunities. And maybe if if things had come a little easier to me physically or in other aspects of my life, I might overlook how um, how important those things are. I always say that you know when you go through something like I go through with muscular dystrophy, you really look at the relationships in your life, at 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 your place in the world, and you find the good in it. You know, I, I mentioned don't you know count your blessings and not your burdens. You know, I don't take an inventory of the things that aren't going well. I, I look for the things in my life that are great. And I have so many of them. And I think when you stay focused on gratitude, um, it helps you get through the tough times in life. And I think, you know, being a part of this and, and doing what I'm doing and being grateful for it. You know, I, I, I always think of guys like you. And, you know, as sometimes, you know, you, you gradually, it's like with my condition, um, it's a gradual process. You know, I was, I was, able to do a lot more things 20 years ago than I am today, but it's, it happens so gradually and you adjust. Same thing with your career in broadcasting. You know, you come out, you have these aspirations of where you want to be as a broadcaster, and then you get opportunities and jobs and you think, wow, this is unbelievable. But then you start going, well, but I want more, I want more, but it's so gradual to get there. And then you get to a high level and you, you, have to, you have to remind yourself, you keep looking ahead and going, yeah, well, I'm the, uh, I'm the voice of an NFL team, but I really want to be doing an NFL game of the week on Fox. And you go, but wait a minute, re- remember when I was 12 
remember when I was 14, if you could tell me that I'd be doing X job, I would have thought, there's no way that that would be the most incredible thing. But once you get there, you know how hard it was to get there. You know how much effort you put in. You're looking for more. Um, and I think when you're, you know, when my condition, if it's taught me anything, is sometimes you have to, you know, when I can't be in a, when I can't run, I can't be in a hurry. And I think it's, it's shown me some, it's taught me some patience too. It's taught me some, that things are, are difficult. You've got to really grind and you've got to be patient and be happy about where you are right now. When you, when you said, Chris, about, you know, me not, um, you know, fear of the future will paralyze you in the present. It could also be, you know, looking too far into the future in a positive way. All right. Well, when I'm, when I'm uh, the top guy at CBS, then I'll start to enjoy my life. No, focus on one day I might become the top guy at CBS, but right now I'm the voice of an NBA team in the city where I grew up. That's incredible. And if that's as far as it goes, that's amazing. And the same thing with my condition. I'd say, well, I don't know physically how difficult it's going to be in 10 years. Um, I can't worry about that. I'm just going to try and take advantage of everything I can do right now and enjoy living in this moment right now. Um, and, and that's that in a nutshell is, is what, you know, the things I've discovered and learned about my life. You referenced your partner of 18 years, Tim Capstraw, and when you were first paired, he was newer in the color analyst game, if you will. What were some of the steps you took to, to forge that relationship and create that camaraderie that you have now? Well, I'll go back and tell the story of how Tim came to my attention. It was the, the, my first full-time year as the play-by-play -play voice. I had, I had been the backup for about three years where I was doing like 20 games a year. I was working with, mm -hmm. at first it was Michael Korn, a former net, and then it was uh, Albert King. And then my first year full-time, they made me the full-time play-by-play announcer and they brought in Kelly Chapuka to be the full-time analyst. So it was a new team, a new pairing, and we did one year together. And then Kelly uh, moved over to the TV side because Yes Network started my second year and, and they moved Kelly over there. And there were, uh, you know, we kind of put the word out that we were looking for a radio analyst. And Lou Lamorello was the uh, president of the Devils at the time. And he also ran the Nets. It was, it was a short period of time, a few years there where the Nets and Devils were together. And um, Lou had gotten some people that were sent his way and, um, he would run it by me every once in a while, but they were sort of doing the negotiating and figuring it out. And I remember I got married right before my second season and I went on my honeymoon and got back. And now it was about three or four weeks before the start of the season or the start of the preseason. And I got back and I was told that there were a number of candidates and they were going through them. I said, okay. And I get back and I inquire, um, have they hired anybody? Have they, have they thought about, you know, have they, they made the, made the deal. And I was told, no, it's not going to work out with any of these guys. But um, so if you have anybody else, you know, let us know. And I went, wow, man, um, we're about three or four weeks away from the season right now. I mean, I could work by myself. I don't really want to. 
uh, and I'd really like to find somebody. So there was a guy that came to mind, and I think you've had him on the show here, a former uh, Fordham guy named Jack Armstrong, okay? So Jack, I had met Jack when I was at Fordham. He was the coach at Niagara, and he's a Fordham alum, and uh, he was doing, uh, you know, pre and post some studio stuff. I don't even know if he was doing games yet for the Raptors, but Jack had, when I'd see him over the years, had, had mentioned about maybe one year, uh, you know, coming back to the New York area if it ever became possible for him. So I called him up and I said, listen, Jack, I don't know if you've got any interest, but we do have an opening if you, if you, if you want to come back to this area. And he said, oh, man, you know what, Chris, I just signed a new deal here with Toronto. You know, my family, we live in Buffalo. We're happy up here. Everything's good. I, I'm not looking to leave. Uh, he goes, but, you know, I have a guy you should call. I have, I have a guy, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell him to contact you if that's all right. And he, is, he goes, his name's Tim Catastraw. He, he was a coach at Wagner in Siena, and he's been doing some TV stuff. And he's a great, you'd love him. He's a great guy. I'm going to have him give you a call. I said, all right, Jack, that's good. You know, have him give me a call. So uh, Tim sends me a tape, a VHS tape of him doing a game. And I, and I want to say the game was like, it, that I'm watching was like at Rose Hill Gym. Like he was doing some uh, uh, maybe Northeast Conference game or something. It was, in, it was in the Rose Hill gym. But I also, at the same time I get the tape, I get a call from Mike Green. And now Mike and I have a good relationship and he's a Fordham guy and it, our relationship goes back a long way. And I really respect Mike and I consider him a mentor. And, you know, Mike said, hey, I know this guy. He's, he's, he's been doing these uh, individual workouts for my son out here on Long Island. He's trying to get into broadcasting. He's a former coach. His name's Tim Castro. And I said, well, now I have two of my favorite people in the world in the, in the business just recommended this guy in, in Jack Armstrong and Mike Breen. Um, that's a good sign. And I told, I told Tim to come in and let's just, let's just meet at the office. And he came into the Nets offices. And um, I just immediately got a really good feeling from him. And I knew he didn't have any MBA experience, but after our conversation, I said, you know, you know so many people in coaching. I guarantee there's going to be a guy on every staff in the league that you have some connection to and that you're going to be able to mosey up to before games and that, that warm up time a couple hours before the game. And you'll get to know the league right away. You know, as long as you know how to, to be a communicator on the air, you'll learn the league. And, and then I think I told him, and he tells this story all the time, you know, because Tim would be like, well, I can be kind of funny and all this kind of, I said, listen, all I need you to do is be John Andres, right? Another, another Fordham guy who worked many, many years, the late, great John Andres, um, a great Fordham player, longtime Knicks broadcaster alongside Marv, Marv Albert. And I always thought of him on radio as just the perfect analyst. He, he, was, he was a great partner to Marv all those years. And I just, there was a way he presented the game and communicated succinctly, um, I thought was great. I said, if you want somebody to emulate, it would be, it would be, it would be John. So unbeknownst to me, Tim went to NBA offices and got old tapes of John Andres and just listened to him and studied him um, because that's kind of the work ethic he has. He, he prepares, he studies, uh, he tries to get better in all aspects. And, you know, that first year, you know, we did over 100 games together. We went all the way to the NBA Finals, and we're doing a game six of the NBA Finals in San Antonio together. So um, our, our career together started off on a high note, and it continues to this day. We continue to evolve 
and get better and learn more about each other. We're, we're best friends off the air as well. So uh, it's been, you know, outside of my, my wife, Laura, and my son, Christopher, it's, it may be the most, uh, the closest relationship I've had in my life. Chris, before we let you go, a couple of the guests we've been asking about their their favorite Fordham memory. You were at Fordham the last time the men's basketball team reached the NCAA tournament. Is there a game or a moment throughout your WFUV tenure that stands out at the top? Oh, there's there's so many, and I was really fortunate. Uh, Fordham basketball was fantastic when I was there. Maybe the maybe the best it's ever been from you know eighty eight to ninety two. Um, we went from, in, in my sophomore year, interesting, we were still in the MAC, and we were a five seed in the MAC tournament. And I remember going up there and not thinking we were going to be there very long. And maybe I'd be gone for a day or two. And then suddenly we go all the way to the, the MAC final. And so we're there from, you know, for like a week. I remember, I think I missed midterms. I had to have AD Frank McLaughlin call my, my professors to get me out of a couple of midterms while I was up there broadcasting. But um, there were a couple of things that I remember from that tournament. Um, one was it was the weekend that Hank Gathers died. He was a Loyola Marymount player who collapsed on the floor. He was a Philly kid. And LaSalle was the best team in the MAC at the time. And they were a number of, it was all Philly kids on LaSalle, including um, uh, uh, Lionel Simmons, who was an NBA, uh, he became a, a lottery pick in the NBA that year. They were a top 20 team. Doug Overton was on that team, Randy Wood. So it was during a semifinal game that those guys found out that Hank Gathers had collapsed and passed away. We had a player on our team named Sanford Jenkins, who was a Philly kid. So they all grew up together and they all knew each other. And Sanford had told some of the kids on the LaSalle team. And I remember we had already beaten, uh, I think it was Siena to get to the final. And we were going to play LaSalle. And coach Nick McCarchick was the head coach at Fordham at the time. He went to Speedy Morris, who was the head coach of LaSalle. And he offered to forfeit the game because he said, you know, you're, you're, you guys are a top 20 team. You've been the best team in our, in our conference all year long. Your kids are really affected by what just happened with Hank Gathers. Um, I would gladly allow you guys to go to the NCAA tournament and, and we'll give up the game. And, and of course, Speedy Morris was grateful for the offer, but didn't, you know, didn't take him up on it. And we played that, that final game. And what I remember was I remember being in the press room before that game. And we were going to be on ESPN. And it's the day I met Bill Raftery. He was in the press room. And I walked up and I introduced myself to him. And I was just going to say hello and tell him how much I admired him and, and walk away. And he said, oh, come on, sit down next to me. Tell me about your team. And here I am just sitting down with the great Bill Raftery and, and talking about, uh, you know, giving him a, a scouting report on all the Fordham players for his broadcast. And then, you know, later on, I would go on to work with Bill when he was with the Nets and he's become a dear friend of my life. He was at my wedding and he's become, he's a favorite of my family and everything. So um, that game always stood out. And I remember us, I, I want to say we were up at the half and, uh, and then ended up, but, but I ended up losing the game. Uh, but, 
that was the first real, truly memorable broadcasting experience for me. Um, and then going down to my junior year, my senior year, junior year, uh, we transferred to the Patriot League. And we had a terrific team. Top 25, Damon Lopez at center, you know, Fred Herzog, John Prelo, Sanford Jenkins. I mean, it was a really good team. And we win the conference easily. But it was the first year of the Patriot League, so there was no automatic bid. So we had to play a play-in game against St. Francis of Pennsylvania. We go drive all the way out to Laredo, Pennsylvania. I don't know if you've ever been out to Laredo at St. Francis, but it is a hike. And it's in the middle of nowhere. And we walk into the gym, and I think the entire town of Laredo, Pennsylvania was in the gym. They had a, a, a rock band playing. They had a DJ. And we had to walk in past the bleachers to get to the locker room. I remember walking off from the bus to the locker room with the team and going past the bleachers. And it was like it was already the, the second half of the game. I mean, they were just vicious. And I looked at, at uh, Mike Stone, my partner at the time, and I said, I got a bad feeling about this. And, and they did. They beat us that night. And it was disappointing because that might have been the best team that we had when I was there. My senior year, they, we lost Damon Lopez, but we still had the rest of the team. We were pretty good and, and won the Patriot League and got the automatic bid that year and had to go up to Worcester as the 14th seed to play against UMass. And John Calipari was the coach there. And, um, and so we got beat soundly, but getting to go through that experience and be at uh, the NCAA tournament was amazing. And my partner that night was a guy who was a great AP college writer now named Ralph Russo. And um, a few of my regular guys I work with, they decided to go on spring break and they missed that game. And Ralph did the game with me. And I had never done another NCAA tournament game until many years later when I get hired by Westwood One to work the NCAA tournament. Uh, this is about five years ago. And the, I go to the region at, in Brooklyn. I'm in Brooklyn at Barclays Center. And I walk into the press room. And who do I see who I haven't seen? In, in 20 years or so, since we did that game in Worcester in the NCAA tournament covering the event for AP, it was Ralph Russo. So we got that little reunited there back in the NCAA tournament. Hopefully, someday soon, we'll have Fordham back in the NCAA tournament. Chris, really appreciate the time. Be well and enjoy the rest of the playoffs. Thanks so much, Chris. All right, guys. Thanks for having me. Take care, guys. Awesome catching up with Chris, and you don't only learn so much about the craft of play-by-play, -play, talking to Chris Carino, but perspectives on life as a whole. And two of his quotes are, the first being, fear of the future will paralyze you in the present. Um, and Chris, uh, in, in some of his work that he's done with, with the Nets, has talked about um, his experience, and he, he's even tied it into our present day and how the future is so unclear, so murky right now, and how you can only focus on the present. And certainly that's something that uh, he's been able to hone in his own life. Uh, and the other is count your blessings, not your burdens. And, and I think, Emmanuel, it's something that, that all of us have to, to try to do every single day. Also tying together the whole Fordham contingent, the essence of the Off the Air podcast, Mike Breen, major impact on his career, Jack Armstrong recommended his current partner of 18 years, Tim Capstraw, Bob Papa, provided him an internship opportunity that springboarded him into his current journey. So 
a really strong Fordham alumni network that continues to give back to this day. It's just amazing seeing how guest after guest um, has another FUV name or a couple other FUV names uh, to throw out and tell us how this person advanced my career in this way or advanced my personal life in this way. There's, there's so many personal and professional connections um, from WFUV that are alive and well. Um, and Chris is just a prime example of that, getting his first job out of college from an FUV connection um, and, and reaching out to us to be uh, a similar branch in that always growing tree of, of FUV talent and alumni. If you want to catch weekly episodes of Off the Air, WFUVsports.org, wherever you get your podcasts. For this week's edition of Off the Air and for Chris Baccia, Emmanuel Barbari, we'll catch you next week. This is the Off the Air Podcast.